Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. Everybody and welcome to the Women Centered Health Podcast. Today there are a lot of big things happening. First, Stephanie and I would like to announce a new partnership with Higher Learning Technologies, a company founded in Iowa that focuses on mobile study and learning solutions for professionals. We are very excited about this partnership as they will also be assisting us with the production of our show so that we can focus on more high quality interviews. So be sure to look out for more on this partnership in the future. Speaking of high quality interviews, we could not be more excited to speak with Lastasia Coleman and Lynette Cooper about maternal mortality, especially maternal mortality among black women. Stephanie and I have been laying a lot of groundwork for this episode and have recorded some amazing episodes on unconscious bias, reproductive justice, and have touched on concepts like cultural humility, social determinants of health, and reproductive coercion. But today we're bringing it all together to talk about such a critical topic. And in brief, Lastasia Coleman is a midwife and Lynette Cooper is a nurse practitioner and nurse faculty. But since we have a little bit of a shortened recording time today, we're going to jump right in. So hi, Linda and Lastasia. So Nicole and our guests are never together. And this is our first podcast episode where we're all recording together. So we get to see each other. <laughs> so thanks so much for being on our podcast today. So first, could you both provide a little bit of details about your background? So your clinical experience, your educational background, and whatever else you feel like sharing. Lynette, do you want to go first? Sure. So I'm Lynette Cooper. I am a nurse, a family nurse practitioner and nurse faculty. So I teach a quality and safety and health disparities course. And my clinical background is as an RN, I was a NICU and mother baby nurse. And as a nurse practitioner, I primarily do kind of a outpatient, urgent care, convenient care, quick care kind of practice. But I also am the nurse practitioner for a young parent program where I do home visits for young moms and their babies and I think that's about it. Great. Thank you. And Lasasia. Hi, I'm Lastasia Coleman. Um, I'm a certified nurse midwife. I work both in the inpatient and outpatient setting. So I see women for not only prenatal care, but also for well women care, birth control. If you think you have a UTI or a, some type of infection, I can see women for those things as well. And then preconception. And then in labor and delivery, I'm working with our patients in our group and delivering babies and seeing women after they have babies in the hospital and kind of other things. I also do a lot of teaching like Lynette, mostly in the clinical setting, but I also give lectures. Um, Some of the areas that I speak on are breastfeeding, racial disparities and maternal morbidity and mortality and quality and safety issues with OB care in the inpatient setting is some of the things I can talk about. I also am the vice chair for the board of directors for Emma Goldman Clinic. And Lynette and I are both founding members of the Black Women's Maternal Health Collective. Awesome. So we also like to ask our guests, what informs your perspective? So in other words, why do you do what you do? And what is most valuable to you? And Lynette, you can go first again, if you want. So what informs my perspective? I think the thing that 
it's first and foremost or front and center in my perspective is that I'm a black woman and a mother and a nurse and nurse practitioner and educator. So <laughs> all of that. <laughs> but my perspective in my profession and my different roles, what I bring is my experience as a black woman in this society. That is what I think makes me unique in the care that I provide and in the way that I teach and just the perspective that I bring to the classroom, to the bedside, and again, as, as a mother. And that's why this issue of maternal mortality and, and specifically how it affects black women is the most important thing to me right now, both personally and professionally. So that's what I think is what informs my perspective the most. I think as black people and as black women, we never forget for one moment that identity, especially living in a place like Iowa. <laughs> you never forget for one second that identity. You carry it with you everywhere you go. And so, yeah, I think that's what informs my perspective. And what's most valuable to me is my family, obviously. But professionally speaking, it's equitable care. And that is why I teach because I want to get my hands on <laughs> these future nurses before they get their hands on us. <laughs> I hope that's a an okay way to say it. And I want to make sure that really anyone from any marginalized group, but especially people that have been exceptionally marginalized, mm -hmm. are getting equitable care because we're we're just not as a healthcare community doing a a bang up job <laughs> at that right now. Right. So that's what informs my perspective. Thank you. And what about you, Lestasia? So I would agree with a lot of the th same things Lynette said. I think professionally, actually, the thing that really informed me the most was personal, which was you know being pregnant and having my first daughter. I was a young mom, and I feel like even still, when I meet a lot of young mothers, young pregnant people, they're often kind of judged and stigmatized and not really taken seriously for the things that they want or desire during their pregnancy or after they have their baby. And just knowing that when I was young, I knew what I wanted. And, you know, making sure I bring that to work with me every day and knowing if I'm seeing a 16 year old, 18 year old, that they have a good idea about what they want. And if they have questions, they're going to ask me and I can be open and answer things for them and maybe bring up some things that they you know, haven't thought of or don't know are out there and available to them. And so that was kind of really important for me kind of getting into the work of women's health is just feeling like, people didn't take my voice seriously. And now I get to kind of be on the other side of that and make sure I'm doing one of the things that is a core principle of midwifery, which is listening to women. Other things that I would say inform me, being a mom, I am married and I have two daughters. And so that really brings home the importance of the work of working on improving the state of Black maternal health, because my daughters are also Black women. And I feel like I have a position right now of a little bit of power and some access to spaces where black women maybe haven't ever been before. And I can use that to help improve things for my own kids one day. This is one of my favorite questions on our podcast because it's so interesting to hear what drives people because everyone, I feel like it always comes from a very personal place, especially with sexual reproductive health, why you get into the field. So it's very not an easy job. No. <laughs> All right, so let's jump right in then. So there's been a lot of news reports in recent years about maternal mortality among black women in the U.S. Can you briefly describe maternal mortality and then some statistics on this issue more in general? 
So looking at maternal mortalities, there's actually a lot of different definitions for how different states or organizations define maternal mortality. So here in Iowa, we look at a maternal death during pregnancy or up to a year postpartum from any cause. Some other states or other organizations might look at it as a death just from a pregnancy-related cause, like a hemorrhage or something like that. And they don't include causes that might be unrelated to pregnancy, like a car accident or homicide, suicide, drug overdose, those kinds of things. And some don't include men who experience mortality up to a year. Some are just like the 42 days, 60 days. So it kind of varies. So there really isn't necessarily a standard definition for who qualifies to be evaluated if a woman dies. It's also a little bit tricky because oftentimes places where women, especially postpartum, present for care and maybe if they're having like a cardiomyopathy or having really high blood pressure, they might not disclose that they've recently been pregnant. So you might not even know that that is going on. If they're not asked, they might not say, yeah, I had a baby three months ago or something like that. So it makes it really hard to actually get a full picture of what is actually happening. As far as statistics and things go, we know that in the United States, Black women and Native American Indigenous women have the highest rates of maternal mortality, and the disparities are also highest in those groups. So nationwide, it's about three to four times incidence and of maternal mortality for Black women, about two to three times for Native and Indigenous women versus white women. In Iowa, it's six times. So we're exceeding the national average. So that's why we're doing the work that we're doing. Any ideas as to why Iowa is so much higher? There's different things you can consider. I mean, one of the things we know that we need to work on as a whole healthcare system is structural racism and things that we see embedded into our system. So we know that a higher number of Black women might seek Medicaid for pregnancy insurance coverage. That insurance coverage ends at 60 days after pregnancy and In Iowa, in our last maternal mortality report, 56% of the deaths occurred in the postpartum period. So that year after they give birth, so a lot of women have lost their coverage and cannot seek, continue to seek care if they have like a chronic condition that needs to be managed. So insurance, the way that it's set up right now is definitely a, a huge factor when we think about structural racism because it's tied a lot to your employment and a lot of jobs don't include that as part of one of their benefits. And so... You know, that's why single-payer healthcare insurance is an important thing. We have an episode on yeah. that. <laughs> I mean, it's a national issue, but in some places it's much higher than, those rates are much higher than Iowa. With New York, in the South, in D.C., you can see rates up to 12 times. So Black women are dying at 12 times the rates of, of white women. But speaking of Iowa, we have a, a problem with structural racism. So in Iowa, we're not very diverse in Iowa, racially and ethnically. (laughs) But we find a unique way to discriminate against the very few (laughs) uh, people of color that we do have. Right, right. And so that's what I thought. It's like you're even, you know, if you're black or, you know, Hispanic, or you're like even more of a minority than maybe you would be in in New York City or DC. But that isn't really necessarily what's driving this because even in more diverse urban areas, yeah, this, this is, is an a issue. problem from yeah. coast to coast, or even a worse urban, issue. Rural, north, south. This is a problem all over the country. 
Mm-hmm. One of my midwife friends, Katie McFadden, she is an activist and a midwife in the Brooklyn area. She does a lot of advocacy work and kind of to give you a little backstory on why these things get to how they are. If you think about where institutions like medical schools have been set up, they're often set up in poor mm-hmm. black or brown neighborhoods where people are having to seek care there. And oftentimes they're underfunded, understaffed. The nursing staff ratios might not be very good for patient care. They might not have quality and safety initiatives in place because they don't have funding to support those activities. And so that's why we can see these numbers higher in areas where there are higher Black populations is because it's those places have been institutions for a long time and no one's really challenged the care that they deliver because they're a pillar in the community. Right. They're you like know? the best. And I think academic medical centers in general are considered the best, which are always tied to yep. the colleges. So yeah, yeah that's interesting. Yeah. I never so let's kind of keep unpacking that a little bit. And can you discuss the historical context then for what is happening today in a little bit more detail? This is quite interesting because I was just lecturing on this like <laughs> today. But anyway, um, yeah. <laughs> that's why I pointed to her. <laughs> so, I mean, we can go back to colonial days, to antebellum U.S., to slavery times, Mm -hmm. basically, and start to look at the relationship between the medical community and Black people, but Black women in particular, the the father of modern gynecology, James Marion Sims, which I'm sure his name has probably come up, you know. Especially when his statue came down. Yes. He is considered the father of you know, modern gynecology, but he perfected and developed his techniques on enslaved women in what was considered brutal and inhumane, using inhumane methods. It was considered brutal for the time, even the 1800s, um, to the point where they had to hold down these enslaved women to do these procedures. And some of the doctors that did these procedures with him eventually stopped working with him because of his brutality. And so this mm-hmm. is kind of the the birth of the relationship between black women and the healthcare system and medicine. And so we see this trend of this abusive relationship between the 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 medical community and research community and black bodies and black women's bodies continue I mean, we have all the way through the 90s when they were trying, when they were putting the Norplant in, you know, you have David Duke championing the use of the Norplant in these undesirable populations, which was black teens in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. You know, this is in the 90s when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. And so there is so much history. I mean, we even, hospitals weren't even desegregated until the 1960s. And they only desegregated hospitals when Medicare was passed, because the government said, if you don't desegregate, then we're not going to give you all this new pretty Medicare money. And so black people have traditionally been excluded, either excluded or abused. And then only by compulsion were we allowed to even participate in mainstream healthcare, And not just as patients, but even as doctors and nurses, and we weren't even allowed to really participate. So we had all these black medical schools, and and eventually they ended up closing once integration happened because they didn't meet the standards and criteria of the white facility. You know, so there's just so much loaded history 
so much. And so when you ask for a historical perspective, it's like, how much time do you have? You know, because I'm just throwing out the random things that I can think of off the top of my head. It's just we've had a very fraught relationship as black people with the medical community and abusive. Everybody knows about Tuskegee, Mm -hmm. but Tuskegee is just what people know. So You know, we're reading a book called Medical Apartheid by um, Harriet Washington. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. But it chronicles this long history of experimentation and medical abuse on Black bodies. And so what do you think that does to a population when that is their relationship with the medical community? Can you talk about that, though? Like, what does happen? So Iatrophobia. Is the word. I actually heard <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, um, I'm talking about that. Yeah. Which is fear of the healer or fear of doctors oh, okay. and medicine. Black people have a very high rate of iatrophobia, and it might manifest as just not going to the doctor or just a lack of trust. Or I know what you're saying, but it's just, just an underlying concern. Do, do you really mean me good? <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Like, are mm-hmm. you really working in my best interest, or is this because... I'll just say like with my teen moms, my young moms, because mo- many of them are not teenagers, the conversations around birth control, mm-hmm. there is a fear and a lack of trust because of how black women have been abused in terms of reproductive health. They may or may not recognize or understand or know the historical facts that I can ramble off, but it's in the psyche of black Americans that Mm, is, is the medical community, you know, is this really as safe as they say? And are they doing these same things? Are they telling their white patients to do this? So this history is is real and it contributes to the disparities. One of the things I say is that these wide disparities, they didn't happen in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. They didn't just, this is, if you don't understand the historical context for these disparities, then what happens is you start to think that it's the natural order of things. So, for example, black women are just unhealthier when we have right. babies. We're just supposed to die at three to four times the rate of white women. Mm-hmm. Or you think that it's because of the population. There's something wrong with the population that they're causing these disparities. Mm -hmm. And so this is why the historical context is really important to me, because you can't understand. It's like I can't diagnose and treat you without getting a a detailed medical history. So it's the same kind of situation. And then can you talk at all about what that then looks like? at the clinician level. So the patient has this fear and mistrust of the provider, but then how does this historical context then play itself out in the perspective of the provider? I think something to kind of bring in is the concept of weathering. I don't know if you all have mm-hmm. talked about that at all in any of your podcasts, but, while, but yeah. you know, it's it's basically this idea that this repeated daily exposure to racism has a negative impact on the health of Black women, women of color, really anyone who has to endure that on a regular basis. And I think the way that that really plays out is you can see pregnancy is kind of a normal thing and that's how we like to view it but it's also a stressor on your body and so when someone has experienced that their bodies are going to go through a little bit more and sometimes a lot more during pregnancy when another stressor is introduced and so we can see things that we see in higher incidences in black women like hypertension because of the stressors that change your fluid volume during pregnancy and 
if you're not seeing someone who's going to monitor that or take it seriously or intervene when when necessary, then that can be problematic. And then, you know, also on the other patient side of that is, do they trust when it's if it's time to intervene on something if we're giving advice do they trust and the re- like the things all all the things Lynette says gives you reasons why they don't mm-hmm. you know so I mean it's I feel like for patients it's really the most important thing is to establish a trusting relationship and then from there you could build and you know have conversations I tend to use shared decision making and the way I deliver care and not like telling people what they should do. I think a patient's an expert in their own life. So I don't know everything. If I tell you to, you know, I think the best advice is to take this medicine every day, you know, three times a day. Well, you have a a child at home who has some high needs and you think, you know, you're not going to be able to, or you have a new baby and (laughs) you're not going to be able to, you know, you have to wake up during one of your sleeping periods to take this medicine. So that's, those are the kind of things that I really trust what patients say if they don't think that something's going to work for their life and try to find something else for them instead of saying, well, that's my advice and you take it or leave it. I think another important point, Lestasia brought up trust and trying to build a trusting relationship. One of the things that I teach my students is when you are caring for people from marginalized populations, Black, Latino, Native American, LGBTQ, people that have been historically marginalized in our society and by the healthcare community, you have to approach the relationship as if the trust is already broken, because it is. And so sometimes you might have to prove yourself a little bit. And as a clinician, if your goal is to deliver patient-centered, equitable care, then you just have to accept that, that I am a representative of this system that has been abusive. And even as a Black nurse practitioner. I also know that I'm a representative of this system that has been historically abusive to certain populations. And so I have to do this too. They're not just going to necessarily trust me just because I'm Black even. I have to build a trusting relationship. And a lot of the onus for that is going to be on me as the clinician. I have to prove myself trustworthy because I'm representing a structure that has not been trustworthy. That reminds me of so Nicole and I are in some nurse practitioner Facebook groups and we appreciate it in the fact that we can see different perspectives and than our own. And this isn't, I, I can't even remember what it was about, but it was like this pushback, like we're the experts and our patients don't believe us and why even come to us like kind of a thing. And I think I made like a snarky comment and then so, <laughs> but uh, yeah. And then I had a head injury after that, but so I didn't respond, but I think both of your comments about the shared decision making, our patients are the expert on their own body in their own life. And then also like putting that onus on the, the clinician that it's the clinician's job to build that trust. Um, because I think that a lot, not all, but a lot of clinicians say, think I'm the expert, you're the patient, you just need to believe what I say. And I think there's a huge problem with that. And our patients aren't going to necessarily listen to us, (laughs) which is really what we want. And I think the other layer that gets put on this, and and this isn't going to sound good, this is not how I feel. So I just... (laughs) Is, and I see this, especially where I live and in general, and I see this coming from white folks, is that this, it's hard 
I think for them to grasp, oh, but slavery's done. Like, they need to just get over that. Like, that's no longer happening. And so I think the idea of trying to grasp that these structural racism and all these concepts are still happening and to recognize that even if, say, you're my patient, and maybe you have never been the victim that you will still hold these things even if it hasn't happened to you. And I think that... Mm -hmm. People just don't recognize that even if it didn't happen to you, that's still very real. And so I think there's kind of this thin veil or something that we need that especially white, any practitioner needs to recognize that this these invisible things are still very real. And even if it didn't specifically happen to you, but does well, any of that make that sense? That makes sense. Yeah. Well, slavery didn't happen to me, but racism still happens right. to me, you know? Yeah. Right. And so I, I think that idea that, well, slavery was about 150 <laughs> or 160 years ago. Not that long. Okay. Yeah, not that long. No. Well, I mean, I mean, I, I can look at, I know that my grandfather's parents were children of, of enslaved people. So my family still lives in uh, Mississippi on mm. the, you know, very near to the same likely the same plantation where we were enslaved. And so, yes, slavery itself ended in 1865. But when you say this happened so long ago, that is because Americans, and especially white Americans, don't know American history. And they don't understand the trajectory of how racism has evolved and continues to persist in every single institution it's it's inextricably linked to every single aspect of american life mm -hmm. and so i think that is the the privilege of being white mm -hmm. that you don't have to know that mm -hmm. and so you look at slavery as this moment in time in american history that ended but you don't understand how after slavery, there was Jim Crow. And after Jim, you know, there's all these things and then mass incarceration. And then we say slavery ended. Thank you, Abraham Lincoln. Then I guess stuff wasn't great. And then we had Martin Luther King and then Obama was president. So all is great. But, you know, <laughs> that's but honestly, that is that's I don't blame the average person for not having that understanding. It's not taught. Yes. And so that's part of the responsibility that I take on as an educator in teaching how racism and American history and the history of medicine when it comes to race and how we have mm -hmm. historically cared or not cared for black people or excluded black people, how that's linked with the health disparities that we see today. And I'd say, too, if we're going to talk specifically about reproductive health mm -hmm. and slavery, like slaves weren't being brought over from Africa for the entire duration of slavery, right? Essentially, the uterus of a black woman became the economic engine of the United States, right? Because they didn't have to continue to bring slaves over. They would control the fertility and pregnancies and all of that of the black women who were slaves. And so our bodies have been regulated since we got here. So, I mean, it's reproductive justice, just that whole concept just arose formally within my mm -hmm. lifetime, you know, so that mm -hmm. it's, and it's not widely practiced, 
right? It's talked about in groups. Some people can find a provider or community that supports that, but it's not, everyone doesn't have that. It's still something we're working to achieve as a human rights issue. Do you want to provide our listeners a definition of reproductive justice? So we have a couple episodes on it, but just, you know, in case people haven't listened to those and aren't familiar. Yeah. So reproductive justice was an idea that came about developed by women of color. And it's the idea that women and birthing people um, have the right to choose to be pregnant, choose not to be pregnant. And if they choose to have a child, to parent that child in a safe and sustainable community. So there's a lot of other like facets that go into reproductive justice, but we have a kind of a lot of movements related to reproductive health. So there's like kind of that single issue like abortion access. That's kind of like one entity of everything. But reproductive justice is like a very broad concept where it's not just looking at abortion access, abortion law. It's looking how how these regulations actually impact the daily lives of people. So people can go and debate about Roe v. Wade and we're talking just about the law, but we're talking about how that actually plays out in the everyday lives of people. So I was just having a conversation with somebody about that term. She had not heard that before, but I sent her Tony Mon Leonard's episode that we did where she talks about reproductive justice and she uses the term thrive, not just surviving, but thriving. Mm-hmm. And that like really made a lot of sense to me. Like it's not about whether you're alive or not alive, but that you're thriving in your life. Mm-hmm. I love all of this. It's just it's so important that <laughs> providers understand that th- it's so pervasive. So can you talk about how the clinicians, the individual clinician plays a role in increased maternal mortality or or what you've seen in, in the research? So when you look at maternal mortality in general, medical causes of maternal mortality in Iowa, one of the leading causes is hemorrhage, right? So if we're going to kind of break that down a little bit, Moving towards using safety bundles, which safety bundles are kind of written by various organizations for various common problems that happen in healthcare. So for us, we use AIM safety bundle. So that's a project that the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists came up with to develop basically toolkits that people can use to improve care delivered at their institutions for common problems and common causes of maternal mortality. So with a safety bundle for hemorrhage, one of the first things you institute is measuring blood loss. So doing quantitative blood loss, because one of the main causes of hemorrhage is actually providers failing to recognize that a hemorrhage should have been diagnosed, right? So if you're measuring everything, you're measuring bleeding, if you're measuring laps that you're using to collect blood, measuring any drapes, anything that has mom's blood on it. And weigh that, then you know exactly at what point we've gone from just normal blood loss to a hemorrhage and your your vigilance is going to increase at that time, right? So, you know, and in, for example, with our hemorrhage bundles, we have at kind of a stage one hemorrhage is, you know, you get some labs, you put in an IV, you might put in a Foley catheter to make sure the bladder's staying drained. And then as a hemorrhage progresses, because now you're, you're aware, as it progresses, as blood loss continues, there's more interventions you can do with medications, blood transfusions. But if you don't even recognize it, then you're going to miss all these steps. And so that's why we see hemorrhage being leading cause of death is because people are failing to diagnose it in the first place. And you don't know that usually a young, healthy person is doing poorly until they crash, 
right? And so you diagnose it too late. And so that's that's kind of the thing is, I think a lot of times it takes a little bit, your pride is going to take a little bit of a hit when you start to implement things like this, because you're like, oh, I, I'm really good at this. I know exactly what I'm doing. I don't need anybody to tell me. I don't need to measure that. I don't need to, you know, have all these kits and everything laying around, but you actually you do. <laughs> so it's, there's, there's a bunch of bundles that you can use for hypertension, for venous thermal embolism prevention, for maternal mental health and treatment and diagnosis there. So there's a wide variety of those. So I think as clinicians, knowing what those resources are, and if you're not doing those things at your institution, looking at what can be done, because the resources are widely available for at least gaining the knowledge about what's out there. Yeah, I absolutely agree. At the bedside, it's standardization, Mm -hmm. having policy and procedure that you implement across the board Mm -hmm. and not leaving it up to bias, you know, Mm -hmm. providers uh, recognizing or when I was a NICU nurse years ago, we didn't have standard, you know, now we have neonatal abstinence screening. When I was a brand new nurse, we didn't have that. So a lot of times drug screens were ordered based on a provider suspicion or something like that. But Mm -hmm. you saw a lot of bias. So standardization is key. And I think more broadly, people in healthcare in general need to understand that all of us have biases. Like that's not the 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 sin, the crime, because we're human beings and we all have have our biases. And in healthcare, as healthcare providers, we have the same amount of bias as the rest of the population. But it has the added risk of now showing up in the care that we deliver. And we have tons and tons and tons of research that shows that we don't give equitable care and that we discriminate by race and and many other factors. And all of us are capable of doing that. And so I think in healthcare, we need to be honest about where we are as a healthcare community and be willing to look at our own biases. And so I think Broadly speaking, that's one of the things that healthcare providers need to be willing to do. I find sometimes resistance when I talk to experienced, especially experienced healthcare providers when we're talking about healthcare inequality and medical racism and what the data is showing we're doing. We can always find a patient reason why things are the way that they are, but no, <laughs> we need to start, I think, looking at our biases and I think that needs to be standard practice and not just, oh, I took that diversity course on. No, I think hospitals, we need to really start looking at how we're taking care of our patients along lines of difference, like race and gender and religion and, you know, those kinds of things, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. We've talked about that before, too. And do you have any suggestions for our listeners on where they can work on their biases? I would say, particularly in this situation of Black maternal health, a lot of the narrative around it is goes back to blaming Black women for what's happening. And that's really not the way that we do a lot of things in healthcare. Like if someone dies from a cause that maybe something happened in the hospital, you're going to break it down about what happened. You know, you're going to look at what systems failures did we have? Did we have supply chain problems? Did we not have the tools or materials that we needed to, you know, keep this person alive? You might also look at patient factors, right? But the way that the narrative has been spun so far widely is that it's just something wrong with black women. So we don't really have to worry about this. That's their problem. Like it's some genetic or lifestyle or... A lot. One of the things that we see a lot in talking about this, we've had an opportunity to talk to 
presidential candidates and things. And one of the things that they do or that we've seen, be careful in how I phrase this, is they try to bring it back to economics, is they try to equate black with poor Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. black with no access to health insurance and unhealthy behaviors and all these kinds of things. But the research shows that Lastasia and I, healthcare providers with advanced degrees, are still more likely to die from childbirth related causes as our white counterpart mm -hmm. that doesn't even have a high school education. And we have access to some of the best healthcare in the country. We have some of the best insurance that money can buy, but that doesn't save us. That doesn't guarantee that we'll be safe. And so I think one of the things that we need to do is, I, I think one of the problems is that we equate black people with this pathology of poverty and crime and all these other things. And it, we see that when we're talking about maternal mortality. And I think there's a huge empathy gap because I think this country just accepts that black people are supposed to die. I know that sounds like harsh and terrible, but I absolutely think that hmm. it's an empathy gap that we expect black people to die at much higher rates than white people from preventable things. Yeah, that's heavy. It is, and I'm just like sitting with this. It's just, I just <laughs> want everyone to hear this. And I, I want to circle back. So kind of speaking of how clinicians play a role in this, and you had mentioned before, Lynette, how as providers, you should just assume you're starting out with broken trust. And so since obviously our podcast is all about communication and building relationships with our patients, then I guess maybe if you could expand more on what you talk to your students about how, how then can you begin to establish a trusting relationship? or a meaningful relationship. Lastasia mentioned the shared decision-making. That's something that's a principle of the type of care that I provide in all the settings where I provide care. I have lots of jobs. <laughs> <laughs> and I provide care in, in a few different settings, but that's one of the principles that I live by. This is what I believe is the best treatment. Tell me what you think. Do you think this is going to be feasible for you? I think something as simple as, you know, they've done studies and found that doctors, when they're caring for black patients, the body language is different than if they were caring for white patients. They're less likely to touch them and they're more likely to stand by the door, you know, those kinds of things. So even an effort at making sure that, number one, I sit down with you and create that unspoken, we're on the same level kind of body language and that I talk to you like a human being and that I look you in the eye and that I listen to you. I'm a talker. And so I have to, in case you didn't notice. <laughs> so, That's why we have so, a podcast. <laughs> so I, I try to make it a point to shut up. And let people tell their story and listen and give verbal cues and, and just to show that I am here with you present in the moment and I care what you're talking about. And studies show that we don't do that in the same way for black patients. And we are human beings that can read body language just like anyone else. And so if I find that you don't even really want to look at me or you're talking to me like a child or as some of my young ladies and my young parent programs say when the white social worker accompanies them to their appointments, the, the clinician starts talking to the white social worker about what's going on with them or their child. So I think as clinicians care about that individual. I mean, this should not be that hard. 
but studies show that it is. Studies show that, that sounds so generic, studies show, but <laughs> the research does really, does really suggest that white doctors don't necessarily even read black patients' symptoms and communication of illness in the same way. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of work that we need to do. We're contributing to these disparities. And so I think every clinician needs to be intentional about creating a human connection with the person that's in front of them. That goes a long way. Yeah. I would also add that as clinicians, we are leaders in our work and we need to make sure that the patient's experience from the moment they walk in the door is up to par with what we're trying to do ourselves, right? Because I remember going back to the beginning when I was younger and seeking care, probably like really for the first time by myself without anybody else going with me and people making comments about, you're lucky we're even seeing you here when I'm getting checked in. So if the clerk and the medical assistant or your nursing assistant aren't on the same page as you, that patient's already judged the encounter that you're about to have because they've been mistreated before you even see them. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. I know Nicole, I don't know if we've talked about that a lot on our podcast, but Nicole and I talk about that a lot. So like you might be very well-meaning and really trying to build that rapport, but somebody can just, yeah, yep. ruin that before. So they're already shut down there. before yeah. the encounters even started. Mm-hmm. So really thinking about the, the entire staff. Yep. Yeah. I had a situation actually fairly recent with a young woman of color. I'm not exactly sure what her ethnicity or background was, but she walked in the door and immediately the front desk staff said, just yelled at her, do you need an interpreter? And she said no. And they asked her forcefully two or three more times. So by the time she got to me, she was very withdrawn and shut down. And I had to dig through all of that to figure out what was even going on with her and finally to get her to open up to me and tell me what happened. So I'm just using that as a cosign here to what Lestasia says that there needs to be a culture in hospitals and clinics that we will give people the care that they need and a cultural humility. That's the term that I like that we, we're starting to use in nursing. Cultural competence makes it sound like you you can arrive, <laughs> but you can't. Yes. And so there, I think we need to understand that we are caring for all different types of people. Even in Iowa, we're not only going to care for one type of person. And so we need to be more intentional in healthcare about having a culture that embraces diversity and cultural humility Mm -hmm. and making sure that that's considered as a requirement and as something that our staff projects and adopts. And do you have any resources that our listeners can go to to improve their communication with their patients and this cultural humility that you're talking about? So what about people who might not be in Iowa because we do have listeners all over? Is there other resources or does your is your group nationwide or how does that work for oh, that? We're very local here in Iowa, <laughs> um, but a really good tool out there is the Black Mamas Matter. Their toolkit really goes over really good kind of historical perspective, policy, healthcare, advocacy. So you can find their website at blackmamasmatter.org and you can just sign up for emails and then you'll get their toolkit that way. 
you know, we talk about structural racism. Well, the antithesis to that is anti-racism, right? So if you're really committed to doing this work and improving disparities, that toolkit will give you a lot of tools to do some anti-racism work as well. And I think just broader anti-racism work ties into this as well. And so, I mean, if you care about Black women and our babies, I assume that you care about Black people and or, you know, in marginalized communities in general. And so this is just one area. This is a racial justice and human rights issue. And so I think the Black Mamas Matter Alliance Toolkit is a great place to start on this issue. But we also need to be educating ourselves in racial justice just as a principle and anti-racism as a principle. And so there's lots of resources, books, all kinds of things that I think healthcare providers and just the general public and anybody that might listen to your podcast Mm -hmm. should be looking for. I'll actually make a plug here. I recently finished reading a book because I think it's hard, especially if you don't know how to have these conversations. And I recently read a book called Raising White Kids and something about in an unjust society, but the main big print on it is raising white kids. And we'll also put that in our show notes as well. And it talks about how, you know, obviously black folks are talking to their kids about what racism and all this stuff means and and white people aren't. And so it talks about how to have meaningful conversations with your kids. And the whole purpose of then having these conversations is that they can lead then the anti-racist movement recognize when that's happening and know how to be advocates in those situations and that was a really interesting book really i think anybody could read it who's a parent so that they can see the value in talking to their kids at five years old because i've talked to people about it and they're like well my kids are only like five or six i was like oh, yeah yeah. Our kids yeah. Are five yeah or the, or the <laughs> comments i don't yeah. see color yeah, yeah. so that's, that's not an don't. issue in my because no. i don't see color yeah. i always say what do you do at a stoplight then <laughs> I'm going to use that next time. <laughs> but the and the book talks about why that's problematic and why different yeah, schools of thought are problematic. Choice. Yes. Really? And that's the whole point of this book is saying other folks don't have a choice. Yeah. You're making an active choice if you don't say anything. And the other thing, too, is while we love doing this work, a lot of this work has to be done by white folks we can't do it all by ourselves. We need white folks to come along and be our allies and get it no, done. Yes, so, you shouldn't have to. <laughs> so it's important that people are educated on, on this work and being really helpful allies, not problematic allies <laughs> in, you know, improving things. Yeah. So, and uh, I think uh, speaking of helpful white folks um, <laughs> or just white people in general, but all of us, this maternal mortality issue, it disproportionately affects black women and native American women. But The rest of the global community is looking at the United States because this is affecting all of our women. Women in rural Iowa don't have access to great maternity care. And so this is another reason why everybody should care about this issue is because, like I said, while Black and Native women are disproportionately affected, we're all affected. And even white women in this country are dying at much higher rates than they should be. We're the only developed nation where our maternal mortality rate is increasing. And this is insane. Mm -hmm. It's insane. And the global community is looking at us. And so, and yes, they identify that there's a racial justice and a human rights issue in this, but everybody needs to care because while we are affected the most, you're still affected if you are a woman of childbearing age in this country. 
or if you love a woman, <laughs> you know, or care about women of childbearing age in this country. Yeah. So all of us are at risk. And if we tackle this issue for the most marginalized and the people most affected, mm-hmm. the benefit will be felt by everyone. So everybody should care. Yeah, I like that. All right. Well, Steffi and I would personally like to thank you both so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication and joining us in person today, which was absolutely wonderful on such a important topic, especially. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to add before we end? I gave mine. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have anything else to add either. All right. Well, thank you both so much. Thank you. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. <laughs>